Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Neil Langto about his recent book, the approaching storm that, ex- that explores the domestic debates and discussions that informed America's response to the outbreak of war in Europe in 1914 and America's eventual declaration of war in April 1917. This book is published by Penwin Random House. Neil spoke to me from his office in the United States. Neil, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I'm a historian. Um, I, I have professionally trained as a historian. I have a PhD. Um, and my, my initial work in history had been on baseball, which I know is not that big in the UK, of course. Um, but I had done work on the segregated baseball leagues in America, which are called the Negro Leagues. And those had been uh, the focus of the first three books I had written. And after my last book, I decided I really had done enough uh, on baseball and sports and really felt I wanted to find another topic and reach a broader audience or reach the broader uh, history reading audience. And I had started looking at this book, a series of books um, called Our Times, which were written by an American journalist uh, in the early 1930s, late 1920s. He had written a series of six books on the past 25 years of the American century. And they're they're very fascinating books, even to read now almost 100 years later, because they're written from the perspective of someone who lived through the times and knew everyone really well and knew all the movers and shakers. But when I got to his book on World War I in America, I really realized that this is very interesting stuff. Um, America's involvement in the war and how we got into the war. And I felt there had not been much written about that. And that really was my jumping off point to doing this book. I felt it was a story that was really not been told that well or that often, uh, at least in the United States literature. And I also came to believe that the American decision to go to war in 1917 was really one of the most important decisions in the 20th century, because I think it did have a great impact on the course of World War I and the subsequent uh, 20th century. So before we get into the detail, could you give us a brief overview of the central narrative of your book? Well, the book begins in the summer of 1914 and sort of sets the stage of what's going on in America. And... In this book, I chose to tell the story through three seminal characters, former President Theodore Roosevelt, who in 1914 was really on the downside of his career at that moment, was sort of floundering, had lost his popularity and influence, the current president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, and someone who's probably not as well known as she should be, the social reformer and social worker, Jane Addams. These three figures were also important from my perspective because they were very significant figures in the progressive movement in the United States in the early 1900s, which was a reform movement, sort of moving the country to the left and sort of trying to address the current problems in American society in the early 1900s, the urbanization that's going on, the immigration and the the massive industrialization. So Roosevelt Adams and Wilson were all all part of that movement. Now, I use them in this book to tell the story because they all knew each other very well. Uh, They respected one another, all very well-known figures, but they all had a very different perspective as to how America should respond to the Great War. They all realized it was a very important, unbelievably significant development that was going on. Roosevelt so wanted to be in the White House right now while this was happening, and it was killing him that Wilson, the man he absolutely detested, uh, was calling the shots and deciding American foreign policy during this um, conflagration. So that's where the book begins in the summer of 1914, uh, where America already has to start making decisions. Now, Wilson in the White House basically says, we need to be neutral in thought and in deed. Uh, right now, uh, we can't take sides, which of course is going to be you know, sort of a ridiculous um, view to take because Americans are naturally going to take sides when this war begins and begins to unfold. Um, but that is the initial gut reaction in the United States in 1914 is let's stay out of it as much as we can. As the years evolve and as the war goes deeper into 1915, 1916, then you're going to start seeing different viewpoints as to what direction we should go. 
Um, Adams, for example, is someone who believed the United States' major goal should be to find a way to bring the combatants to the peace table somehow. That's what we should be doing at all times. She was a pacifist, but not necessarily from the perspective of a uh, you know, nonviolent pacifist. She was more of an internationalist, believed that it was archaic in the 20th century to be fighting these incredibly bloody wars when why can't we find a way to just bring them to the table, get them to talk at least to see if we can work something out. And then Roosevelt is going to believe that America has to play some role in this war. Um, at the bare minimum, we need to beef up our military. Uh, the United States, which is hard to believe, but when the, when the Great War begins, we have an army of about 100,000. I mean, it's a pathetically small army. And Roosevelt's going to say, we must build up our forces. We need to put our Navy back where it was. I think, I think the Navy was third or fourth in the world in 1914. He believes we should improve our Navy. And he believes that ultimately the United States will have to get involved in this war, if only even to show our mettle as a nation. Why did you write this book? I wrote the book because I felt that World War I, at least again in the United States, not, not in the UK, I'm sure, uh, really gets, I think, the short shrift as far as historical studies and public knowledge. I mean, I felt it's so important and so interesting. And again, as I, I've tried to make this point in the book and even in, in talking about the book, that the decision of the United States to go to war, I believe, changes so many things. I mean, certainly I think it did have an impact on how soon the war actually ended and certainly how the peace was ultimately um, hammered out at Versailles. And I think if the United States doesn't get involved, there's still there's all kinds of alternate scenarios what might have happened uh, as far as the war is concerned. So I think it was a very, very important decision for the United States and a very important decision for us committing troops you know, across the seas. It was, it was almost unthought of. Even when we go to war in April 1917, there were many Americans who believed, okay, we're at war, but there's no way we're going to send troops to Europe. That's, that's unfathomable. Uh, and that's hard to believe that when a few, when the year is going to be a million, I think, if not more, a million American soldiers um, in Europe. So it's, it is, a, I think, a game changer for American foreign policy. And I think it's just a really important part of our story in the United States that has been forgotten and deserves to be remembered. And I think also these three individuals, I mean, Wilson, Roosevelt, and, and Adams, um, very important figures in the early 20th century in the United States, uh, represent different strands of thought, and they all are trying to push the country in the direction that they believe is the right way. They believe will have significant ramifications in the future. So I think you see this very passionate uh, back and forth and argument and, and discussion between these three uh, during this time, uh, each of them trying to see that their perspective is followed because they believe that if it's not, it could have grave consequences for the United States, if not the world in the future. Now, before we commence into the into the, the debates and discussions that led up to the United States declaration of war in April 19, could you just give us a bit of background information on the domestic situation uh, in the USA at this time? What was the sort of socio-political situation that uh, Roosevelt and Adams and um, Wilson were actually dealing with and what type of factors informed their decisions? Well, it was the progressive movement in the United States. I mean, the country was, was leaning left. Uh, definitely at the time, at the time of the, when the war broke out. And I think Wilson's administration, Wilson had been elected in 1912. Roosevelt had, had been two presidents before Wilson and, Wilson, and Roosevelt actually tried to run again in 1912 on a third party ticket and was defeated. Um, but Wilson's administration, you know, Wilson came into the White House in 1913, by the summer of 1914, when the war starts, he had a fairly successful domestic agenda uh, politically and certainly passing legislation that was that was on the liberal liberal progressive side, um, and I think Adams was fairly happy with that, and the country seemed to be happy with that. So the country, in that sense, was fairly I think fairly united as far as domestic policies are concerned. Now internationally, it's a different situation. Um, I think the Eastern Seaboard of the United States was much more connected to what's going on in Europe. Felt the war was much more important. Uh, and was much more affected by some of the issues of American trade and travel, which will become paramount as far as affecting American policy when the war begins. Um, Roosevelt, as I said, detested Wilson, and Roosevelt had been out of the White House since 1909, and by 1914, he's probably on the, on the lowest ebb of his career. He had tried to establish a new third party called, interestingly enough, the Progressive Party, and he had run on a third party um, ticket in 1912, 
But by 1914, when the war has just begun, that party is not achieving what he hoped it would achieve. I think he had he'd hoped that the Progressive Party would kind of be like the Republican Party. The Republican Party of the United States uh, began as a third party and then eventually became the second party of our two-party system in the United States. So I think Roosevelt was helping, hoping that his organization, the Progressives, was going to turn to a third party, but he soon discovered it was not. So he's kind of floundering politically in 1914. The country doesn't seem to be listening to him. And he's going to pick up the mantle for what he calls preparedness, meaning the United States needs, needs to be prepared. And he's going to very emphatically begin to speak out about the Belgium invasion, the German invasion of Belgium. Um, he's going to come to believe that Wilson should have protested strenuously about that invasion and that the fact that he did not was it was a grave mistake. Now, of course, when the invasion occurred, Roosevelt and most people didn't say anything. In fact, I think Roosevelt is a quote in my book where he said something like, when giants wrestle, uh, inevitably those beneath them are going to get stepped on, something like that, meaning like this is what happens in war. Other countries have done this during war. And the Belgian invasion is unfortunate, but there's absolutely nothing we should do about it. Uh, but within a few months, and Roosevelt always tr traced it to when it was a Belgium uh, group that came to the United States in the fall of 1914, and Roosevelt had talked to them, that that was his sort of eye opener as far as what had really occurred in Belgium and the atrocities that had occurred. And he comes to believe that Wilson had botched that. And he soon comes to believe that Wilson had botched just about everything as far as the, uh, the war was concerned. I mean, as for Adams, her belief is, you know, she's very upset because as a rock-ribbed progressive reformer who's involved in just about every liberal cause domestically and around the world, particularly women's suffrage with one of her big causes, she sees the war as it's going to roll back all the good, positive reforms of the last 20 years that nations around the globe um, are going to be kind of under the control of the militarists, and there's going to be much less attention paid to uh, reform issues. So she believes that as a, you know, as a progressive and as, as a reformer, that our role needs to be to find a way to stop the slaughter. And she's going to get involved very early on in starting a, a new organization called the Women's Peace Party, which is a, the first women's um, peace organization of its kind in the United, in the United States. So that's going to be her uh, initial involvement in the war. So your book looks at the perspective of these three uh, prominent U.S. Uh, newsmakers, as you point out, Wilson, Roosevelt and uh, Jane Addams. Why did you take this approach rather than maybe a conventional sort of chronological history, maybe of, of events, rather than, I suppose, looking at it through the eyes of these three key players? I think from a reader's perspective, it's more interesting. I mean, these three are involved in most of the important episodes. So you can sort of use them to tell the story. Um, of the of the main the main events, but the other at the other uh, on the other side, you can take it down to a micro level of looking at these individuals, um, and I think following individuals makes it very interesting. And in this book, I also had a number of secondary characters too. And you have these three major ones, and then I also throughout the narrative threaded different individuals. Uh, for example, there's a story of, of James Norman Hall, who was an American, um, and some of your listeners might particularly find this interesting. James Norman Hall, who enlisted in the British Army in, in the fall of 19, in the summer of 1914, right when the war was beginning, he pretended to be uh, English. And of course, they knew he was not, but they took him. And he was he was in the uh, uh, in the British Armed Forces for about a year. And I use his letters. He, he, you know, he, he wrote a number of letters home to his friends and family telling of his experiences, which are absolutely fascinating. Uh, and you see his you hear about his training. And then when he goes into combat, um, and interestingly for Hall, he eventually was discharged in 1915, late 1915, when his father was sick and came back home. Then he wrote a book about his experience and became a bestseller. Um, interestingly, Hall later joined the French and, and served with the French uh, Lafayette Escadrille uh, later on. And then when the Americans got involved, he served in the American army. So he was in three different uh, served under three different flags during the war, wrote many, many letters, very fascinating stuff, which I used in the narrative. And then later on, some of you might recognize his name. He became a famous author. He wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. So that's an example of a secondary character who's kind of woven through the narrative. And then another interesting person I, I spent quite a bit, bit on in this book is Wilson's advisor, uh, a guy named Colonel House. He really was not a colonel, but 
he was someone who never had a title in the administration, but he was so much involved in just about everything. It's almost like Wilson didn't do anything about talking to House first. And from a historical perspective, he's particularly interesting because House kept a diary for years. Every night he would dictate the diary. Uh, so he was he was involved in just about everything. Uh, Wilson used him as sort of a super ambassador. Wilson sent him to Europe where he met with just about everyone, all the all the higher ups in, in the, on the Allied side. Uh, you hear about his his meetings with with the king, uh, with Lloyd George and I mean, conversations back and forth. What happened with House is that House was supposed to be following what Wilson wanted him to do. He's supposed to represent Wilson's views as far as the war was concerned. But House started to just simply do what he sort of doing his own thing. Uh, and making sort of great promises about American involvement in the war and things like that, which Wilson didn't quite know about till much later. And later on at the Versailles uh, um, conference, uh, House is going to be doing the same thing. And finally, Wilson will wise up and sort of cut House off permanently. But again, that's another interesting story that's threaded through the narrative. So I think for readers to answer your question, are it's it's often more interesting and easier to follow uh, when you're writing a book of this kind, if you can write about people rather than simply do a straightforward narrative. That's a very nice segue into our next question. Is I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about the background of the three main players and how they saw each other. So I'll start with Jane Addams because she's she's probably the least well-known. And it's interesting because even at this time at World War I, she was well-known all over the world. She had, she had connections all over. Everyone in Europe knew her. Uh, she had many, many, many... Uh, British friends, particularly in the suffrage movement, where she was uh, intimately involved. But Adams was someone who grew up in the Midwest, uh, had a childhood privilege, had money, um, but she was someone who couldn't really find herself as a young woman. I mean, she was very, very smart. Uh, she went to college. She thought about becoming a doctor. That didn't really suit her. And actually, what did sort of push her in a different direction was when she came to London and saw one of the first settlement houses. Uh, these settlement houses were usually located in poor sections of the city, be they in Europe or the United States, uh, and young men and women would live in these houses and sort of provide social services. So Adam saw one in London. I think it was, it was called Toynbee Hall, if I remember correctly. But anyway, she came back to the United States, decided to set one up in Chicago called Hull House, became very, very successful uh, soon the entire country was writing about the great things that she was doing at Hull House. She became a national figure in the late 19th century. And then she became just about involved in every reform movement. I mean, she was also a, very, a prolific writer. Um, and what really made her famous was when she wrote an autobiography called 20 Years at Hull House, which talked about her experiences at Hull House. So by the time of World War I, she was a very well-known figure who was looked on by many Americans as almost sort of an American saint because she did all these wonderful things, but they tended to overlook the other side of Jane Adams, who at times espoused very radical views. And when she starts espousing some of these views during World War I um, about peace and things like that, the public will turn on her uh, to a great degree, which will be very difficult for her. So that's a quickie, uh, quick and dirty look at Jane Adams. Wilson, uh, Wilson, in the United States these days sort of has a bad reputation, mostly because of his, his racial views. Wilson was a, a child of the South. He grew up in Virginia. Um, he grew up during the Civil War. And he really never lost those racial views. I mean, he was a progressive in many ways, but as far as race was concerned, he was not. He never could advance beyond that. So in America right now, we're having, you know, there were many schools that were named after Woodrow Wilson or just recently in, in, in uh, New Jersey. I saw just the other day a high school change the name of Woodrow Wilson High School to another, another name. Um, so Wilson's a very complex figure. As I said, he grew up in the South. He was an academic. Uh, he, he was the president of Princeton. He was you know, fairly successful as an academic. I mean, he wrote a number of books in history. And surprisingly, someone in the Democratic Party saw potential in him and said, this guy might be someone we could get into politics. So they ran him for the governor of New Jersey. He surprisingly got elected, performed very well. And then suddenly in 1912, he became a presidential candidate, got the nomination and won. So he, he really, his political story was, is quite remarkable where he came from being an academic uh, to governor of New Jersey to president of the United States. Democrat, liberal, except when it came to race. I mean, his administration uh, 
imposed fairly strong segregation in government positions for which he is, as I said, still rightly criticized very harshly about today. As far as women's suffrage was concerned, he wasn't too keen on that. Suffrage, suffrage people were very unhappy that he was slow on that as well. Um, as far as foreign policy is concerned, the story is he really was not a foreign policy guy when he came into the White House. He was much more interested in domestic issues. And what's ironic is that when he comes in and has to deal with the Great War, he's, he's got to learn on the job. He does, not, he does not have the background that someone like Roosevelt had. So we'll do a quick segue to Roosevelt. Um, and incidentally, these three were all born within about the same time period, all, all in the 18, between like 1856 and 1860, I think they were all born. Uh, Roosevelt, again, came from privilege in New York. Um, very, very super smart guy, had health issues as a young man, asthma. He always told the story that he had somehow conquered asthma with physical fitness, but throughout his life, he always continues to sort of struggle with it, even though he didn't quite let that out in his writings. He's someone like Adams who wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. He went to law school, didn't really like being a lawyer. Eventually, he stuck his toe in New York politics, and from there, he just rose up the ladder. Um, what made him famous was the Spanish-American War with his group of uh, volunteers, the Rough Riders, and their, their, their story of charging up San Juan Hill, which some of that story was a little bit fudged, but it, it made a good story, made him famous. Uh, and from there, that was his jumping off point into national politics, got put on the vice presidential ticket in 1900. And then when President McKinley was assassinated, suddenly Teddy Roosevelt's president, and he's only 42 years old. He was the youngest man to be president. And that's Roosevelt's, uh, you know, how Roosevelt got to be, to be president. He had a very successful term, uh, two terms in office. Um, he finished out McKinley's, then got elected on his own. And Roosevelt was someone who was a larger than life figure. Even if he didn't like Roosevelt, he was so such a recognizable figure, never at a loss for words, very colorful, uh, brilliant. Someone who had, he had a photographic memory and he knew something about just about everything. It's, it's, it's interesting to, I, I read his, in, in doing the research for this book, you see the millions of letters he wrote. I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly, but he wrote so many letters. Uh, he kept up a correspondence all around the world and on all different subjects. He knew something just about every, on, on just about every topic. He had been a historian. He was interested in, in natural sciences, geology, everything. Um, politically, as I said, he was a, a, a Republican who moved to the left. And that was one of the reasons why he ended up forming his own part of the Progressive Party, which we already mentioned earlier. So that's, again, a quick background on the three. They all knew each other. Roosevelt and Wilson had been you know, cordial to one another at one point, uh, but they eventually came to detest one another, uh, which is a sort of a big part of this book of the, the rival be between these two. Adams was friendly with, with Roosevelt at first, uh, was involved in the Progressive Party with him, but would split with him over the issue of the war, the Great War, and she'll instead move towards Wilson and become friendly with Wilson. So three of them are enmeshed throughout this narrative um, and again, very much trying to influence one another and push each other in the, in the direction that they see is the proper direction for America to be pursuing at this time. So what were their respective positions on how the USA should respond to the war once it broke out in um, August 1914? I think Wilson's desire, I mean, he did say, you know, America shouldn't, we, we should not take sides. You know, he, he, his greatest fear was that the American public would lose its emotional, you know, emotional control. I mean, Wilson himself was very big on uh, maintaining what he called self-possession in himself. You know, don't lose, don't lose that. He was always afraid the United States would lose that self-possession and that we would end up making a decision we might regret. And he felt his job initially was to keep a lid on America's emotions. And especially in a country which had such a large immigrant population. Um, you know, we had many, many German Americans in this country, and many of them are going to naturally, they're going to root for the fatherland. I didn't mean they were necessarily disloyal Americans, but if they were watching from, from afar, they were going to root for that side. Uh, then you have the Irish. There were many Irish who were, of course, they were also going to root for the German side because they were not happy uh, you know, with, with England. On the other side, you have many Americans of English descent, uh, of French descent, uh, who are going to root for the allies. So there was that split in the United States. And, and I think on the East Coast, there was a very strong pro-allied um, position, especially in the newspapers and the press. But in other parts of the country, I don't think they cared one way or the other. You have like the great Midwest, which was sort of, yeah, this is far away from us. 
The South, same thing. On the West Coast, they're more concerned about things like Japan. So much of the country, I would say, was was truly neutral. Uh, There were some who were passionately pro one way or the other. Um, Both sides, the Allied side and the German side, will try to win the PR battle in America. In other words, do what they can to make sure that Americans take their position. Uh, The Germans pretty much blew that very early on. I think with the invasion of Belgium, many Americans who were maybe didn't care one way or the other were appalled uh, by that, by the brutal invasion, and instinctively began to take the Allied side. Now, did taking the Allied side mean want to go to war? No, I would say not at that time. They would certainly prefer the Allies to win the war, but they were not, most Americans, at least in 1914, 1915, were not necessarily ready to go to war. So that was Wilson's, Wilson's view was keep America's emotions under control. And then at some point, the Allies or both sides will come to America as you know, as a as he as he said, a disinterested bystander to assist in the peace process. In other words, because we didn't take sides one or the other, we will be able to really you know play an important role in the peace process. This is what Wilson was envisioning. Now Roosevelt believed that was probably nonsense, and and you even have letters early in the war where. Um, Roosevelt's getting letters from Rudyard Kipling, like I think in 1914, Rudyard Kipling was, of course, one of Roosevelt's correspondents. Kipling saying something like, the more money and treasure uh, and, and, and bodies and death that each, each side suffers, the, the less likely they're going to want to have any outsider be involved in the peace process. And I think Roosevelt realized that early, early on. He said, there's no way the United States is going to be, be able to participate in the peace process if, we don't, if we're not involved in the war. I think what he said, he said the best we would be able to do would be act as some sort of uh, go and fetch type thing. In other words, we could fetch the two sides together and then be kept outside the door while they hash things out. That's all we're going to do because we're not doing anything in the war. Um, so he thought what, what Wilson was doing was, was naive at best. So Roosevelt believed certainly, again, that we need to have a stronger military and particularly he believed that we're not in a position to do anything around the world. If we believe Belgium has been brutalized, we can't even do anything because our military is so feeble. So what can we do anyway? Uh, the United States is not doing enough to put our military into a 20th century footing. Uh, he's very angry that in, in December 1914, a few months into the war, where there is talk on Capitol Hill of trying to see where we stand in the United States militarily and, and address that deficiency, Wilson pretty much squelches that because it's not time to talk of that. You know, if there's a war, sometimes we'll get ready, but right now it's not the time to be talking at all about preparing. And Roosevelt's absolutely, absolutely incensed by that. Um, what changes everything is the Lusitania sink, sinking. Uh, when that happens, I think that's a dose of reality for a lot of Americans. And then I'll just quickly pivot to Jane Adams. Adams, as I as I've mentioned, starts the Women's Peace Party, um, which is trying to do what it can to le- at least get peace talked about in the United States, as far as to find a way to again bring the combatants to the peace table and prevent the United States from getting involved militarily. Um, she's also plugged into the international. Uh, peace networks that, that do exist, such as they are at the time. And in fact, she's going to go to The Hague in 1915 as part of a delegation of a women, it's going to be a women's peace conference at The Hague in 1915, uh, which is actually a very remarkable gathering of women, even from some of the, the warring countries, although uh, the British did what they could to prevent uh, British women from going to that, that particular meeting. And after that meeting is over, there's going to be a vote Uh, made at the Congress to send representatives from the meeting to the heads of state of the war in countries. So Adams and a few others will go to Germany, to France, to Great Britain, and talk to the heads of state, you know, trying to get them to say, are there things that both sides can agree on that can somehow uh, bring about either a ceasefire or or something to stop the slaughter? And I, I want to say this also, that Adams was no, she wasn't naive. I think she was someone who believed anything is worth trying to stop the slaughter, even if some of it may seem far-fetched or pie in the sky. She's someone who also very much thought a conference of neutrals could be a good idea, meaning let's bring the neutral countries together as sort of a, uh, as a beginning of a peace conference. And from there, use that to bring the warring powers together to talk. 
So that's really, I think, the, the mindset in the early months of the year of these three, early months of the war of these three individuals. So how does how do they sort of change their views as the war progresses? I'm thinking about events like the Lusitania, you mentioned the and the unrestricted submarine warfare by the German uh, Navy. But what, what about the Easter Rising as well that happens in Dublin in, in April uh, 1916? How did these events shape their 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 respective positions on America's duty and role in the war? Well, the Easter Rebellion is interesting in that in many cases it turned it turned a lot of Americans at least temporarily. Uh, against the Allied side. And one thing I was surprised in, in my research for this book was there was considerably more ambivalence uh, against the Allied side than I anticipated. Because, you know, we always tend to think of, certainly during World War II, where there's this great close relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, even before we got involved in World War II. Um, in World War I, there were a lot of sensitive issues. Uh, the interference uh, of the British with American trade um, you know, Americans believe they should be able to trade with 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 uh, uh, neutral nations. Of course, the British believe, well, you're trading with neutral nations, but they're reshipping it to Germany, so we have a re- we have the right to stop that trade and 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 confiscate cargoes, and we, we will eventually compensate you. But um, Americans were very angry about some Americans were very angry about that. Particularly the cotton growers. So there was, to some degree, a, some some backlash, and certainly the Easter Rebellion was an example when that news of that came came to the United States, there was, was a great deal of, of anger. Um, the letter I have in, in my book where Roosevelt, uh, he got a letter from, I can't remember which British correspondent was, who said, uh, yes, it was a, it, the Easter Rebellion was a much more a much nastier business than, than the public even knows about. Um, and at the same time, in the summer of 1916, there were a lot of controversy about um, the British censors reading American mail. Uh, it opening up mail. There was fear that oh well, the British are doing this so they can get American trade secrets. So there, there, there was you know s- surprising bits of antagonism, and even I read I went into the, the I read a lot of the Foreign Office papers, and you read a lot of the the discussions about America. I mean, it's always we have to placate America. We must placate them. We don't you know we don't think they're going to go to war with us, but they could make things ugly for us. They could try to break the blockade or something like that. So there's a lot of touch touchy touch and touch and go. Uh, feelings on both sides, um, and particularly in 1916, where the German situation with the United States seemed to be quiescent at the time. The, the Germans had agreed to pull back on, on the submarines. They, with the Sussex Pledge, they said, we're going to do cruiser warfare, meaning we will, we will uh, give advance warning. Uh, we, will, you know, we will make sure everyone's safety is provided for, for, uh, for civilians and things like that. So that was at that point, things were fairly calm, I would say, and in the, in the, there was a little bit of backlash against, against the English. But I don't think there was ever any serious antagonism because of the amount of money the United States was making trading with the Allies. I mean, they were making enormous sums of money, um, particularly on munitions um, and, of course, loans. And, and, and the British came to rely on those a great deal by, by 1916, 1917. Um, but coming back to your question, I kind of diverged a little bit there. With Lusitania... I think Wilson came to realize that American, um, American military would have to be beefed up. And following the Lusitania in the summer of 1915, you start having more and more, okay, we, there's going to be more and more discussion of Wilson going into the preparedness camp. But of course, it takes a long time for legislation to get hammered out uh, until 1916. And that was something Roosevelt kept saying over and over again, it's that you know, we can't just build up, we can't just snap our fingers and get get a, an army together. I mean, it takes, it's going to take a long time. And that actually was very, was very uh, uh, far-seeing by Roosevelt, because when America does get involved in the war in 1917, you know, it does take us a while to be able to put a substantial force in the field in Europe. And had we started earlier, like as Roosevelt himself said, uh, we would have been able to deploy a substantial force in 1917 rather than really more in 1918 uh, is the American presence um, on the Western Front much more substantial. So I think Wilson is forced to change his views, but he's certainly not ready to go to war. I think Roosevelt was probably saw war as inevitable. Uh, There's a quote from him after the Lusitania where he said something, in fact, there are worse things than war. In other words, there's you know, what are we as a, as a country, you know, if we cannot back, back up our promises, and if we are going to be humiliated by Germany, um, war is actually a better solution. Now, not many Americans took that viewpoint in 1915. 
Um, but I think, as I said, Wilson is going to be moved gradually more and more to that view. And I think also Wilson will be moved more and more to a belief that America has to be involved if he's going to achieve anything as far as peace is concerned and remaking the post-war world. So why does America declare war on Germany in April 1917? Well, if we back up a little bit, in, in the fall of 1916, the Germans were starting to get a little antsy. I mean, they were probably ahead at that point in the fall of 1916, or maybe slightly ahead, or hold, at least holding their own. Um, but they, they knew they could not win a long war. And they were hoping that Wilson would issue some sort of, okay, guys, let's get together, you know, bring the parties together for some sort of peace conference. Uh, ideally, a peace conference that would allow Germany to keep all of its gains. But that's what they were, they were hoping that Wilson would do that. You know, somehow bring, bring, he would act as the prime mover to bring both sides together for some sort of conference. Um, because they felt they could not win a long war and the war was going to keep going on and on. They probably were going to lose. So this would be a way to wrap up the war nicely with, with them winning it or at least getting the better, better end of it. Um, so there's all these back and forth. There's these letters. You know, there's another figure in this book is, is the, the German ambassador Bernstorff in, 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 uh, in Washington, who's a very interesting figure. He was probably the only German who realized how important the United States was in this picture. Uh, in Berlin, I think a lot of them didn't, didn't really get it. Uh, they thought America was like, all they care about is money, all they care about is money. They, they called it the United States Dollarica. Um, Bernstorff in Washington was like, no, you're wrong. Uh, this country has inexhaustible resources. And if they get involved in the war, we are due. He tried to tell them that, but they, didn't, they just did not believe him. So, so Bernstorff is in Washington trying to do all these little machinations. Uh, but he's told, you know, until the election's over, uh, America's not doing anything. But on the other hand, the Kaiser also pretty much was saying, if America doesn't do something soon, we are going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. Uh, so you better do something soon to bring the powers together to find a way to end the war. So that warning was also hanging over Wilson's head. Now, Wilson you know, read that, you know, didn't ignore it. Wasn't, he wasn't going to be going to be bullied by the Kaiser, but he, it's another data point to con consider. After the election is over, and the election was very, very close, but I won't even get into that here. Um, Wilson realized that, yeah, we're in a very difficult situation because the Germans' current good behavior, as far as the submarines are concerned, is not going to last forever because they want to win the war soon, um, because they know long war is going to doom them. So Wilson starts working on a, on a peace note in the fall of 1916 as a way to sort of try to find a way to bring the, bring the sides together and, and, and get them talking and to be able to at least get a ceasefire. While he's doing that, the Germans get tired of waiting for Wilson to do something and they issue their own sort of half-hearted, half-baked uh, peace offer, uh, which of course is promptly rejected by the Allies. And then unfortunately for Wilson, who is, didn't know they were gonna do this, his own peace attempt comes out of, I think a week or so later, um, which of course the Allies were very unhappy that he did this. They felt he should be not doing this right now. But Wilson felt this was the best opportunity and he also felt this, this is sort of a, a Hail Mary pass to prevent America from getting involved in the war. Because if peace is not made soon, or if not a peace treaty or a peace conference is started, the Germans are going to resume un unrestricted submarine warfare. Um, as it turned out, Wilson's peace move in December 1916 accomplished nothing. Uh, neither side was interested. Um, both sides believed that they could win. Uh, and they and both expended so much blood and treasure by that point. There's like no way we're not. It's like you're hanging on. We're not going to let go right now. We're not. We're not interested in this right now. So Wilson didn't give up. And in early 1917, he made his famous "Peace Without Victory" speech. You know, saying that America, we have a right to be involved in the peace process, and we, you know, we and we also are going to take part in some sort of future League of Nations. And if we're going to do that we have a right to be involved in the peace process that is eventually going to come for this war. Uh, but the peace that should come should be a peace without victory. Uh, it, was, it was a very well-received speech in the United States, but again, across, across the pond, uh, it was not received so well. Um, you know, again, it was a case of why is, who's Wilson think he is, he should be butting out, things like that. At the time that Wilson made this speech, he thought that the Germans might be receptive, but he was wrong. 
Uh, he, he didn't, you know, I, I wrote this in the book that the Americans didn't have a great idea of what was really going on in Berlin. They didn't have the, the, the spies. You know, the Germans had spies in the United States. The Americans needed spies in Germany. They didn't really have them. Um, but the German higher ups, uh, the military and the Navy had made the decision for unrestricted warfare, return, a, re, a resumption of unrestricted warfare um, in early 1917. And once that decision is made, that's that's the die is cast. I mean, when Wilson is informed of this, uh, he immediately severs ties with Germany, the German ambassador, diplomatic ties, German ambassador is sent home, uh, the American ambassador in Berlin is sent home. And at that point, everyone thinks that war is probably going to come. Uh, you know, there's some articles at, the t- at that time saying every time two major powers have severed diplomatic ties, almost it always has led to war in the past. But Wilson still hesitated. He he thought again there might be a way out. Um, he 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 figured it was up to the Germans, you know, because the Germans have, up to this point had done everything possible to keep America out of the war. But at this point, they had decided that we have to go for broke. We have to release the submarines if they if it brings the Americans into the war. So what? Because it will be too late. By the time the Americans can get an army together, we will have won the war. We will have starved the British into submission, and our great plan has worked. Of course, that plan was, was completely wrong. And, but that seemed to be the, 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 one, the one idea that was sort of pulsating through the, the, the German military and Navy at the time was that we can win the war this way. And who cares about the Americans? By the time, by the time they get up to snuff, it'll be too late. So Wilson was thinking, okay, maybe the Germans will continue their good behavior you know, until they do something right now. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll stay, stay neutral. Um, the next push, however, becomes to, or we should at least arm our ships, you know, so we'll be doing armed neutrality. And that becomes a huge fight on Capitol Hill, which I won't even bother with, but they, they can't get that through either. Eventually, there are two things that are going to push Wilson finally in the direction of, of, of going to war. Uh, one of them is the, the, the famous Zimmerman telegram. This was a, a telegram sent from Berlin uh, from the German Foreign Office to the Mexican ambassador, uh, basically saying, well, it looks like war with America is likely to come. If it does come, we would like the Mexican assistance. And we'll, let's dangle out a couple, you know, if Mexican wants, Mexico is gonna help, help, wants to help, we'll even give them the opportunity to, to, to conquer, win back lands they lost to the United States and parts of states like uh, Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and things like that. It was an absolutely uh, preposterous uh, scheme. Um, Cooler heads in Berlin should have put a stop to it. Um, For what I've read in my research, one of the reasons that it it sort of got through was that this was in the midst of the decision for unrestricted submarine warfare, where kind of there was like chaos going on. Uh, So this this made its way through this scheme. Uh, The British intercepted it. Uh, Blinker Hall and his and his his code breaking team intercepted it. They sat on it for a while because they didn't want the United States to know they were also intercepting some some American diplomatic cables as well. Um, then eventually they they disclosed it to the United States. It was go- it went to Wilson, and then Wilson allowed it to be leaked to the American press, which of course re- resulted in a great uh, you know anger in America over this. Even though again. People realize people when they thought about it, they realized it was a, it was a crazy cockamamie scheme that had no no basis in reality. But the idea of trying to foment war on on the on the uh, on the on the American Mexican border was 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 simply crazy. Now at the time, I'll just quickly quickly uh, uh, mention this: there was a great deal of tension with the United States and Mexico. Uh, I mean, Mexico was always had, had been a thorn in the United States side for a while. It was an unstable country with a civil war going on, so it was not surprising that the Germans would think, okay, if we can get the Mexicans to tie up the Americans on the border, uh, that will prevent them from, from sending troops to, to, uh, to Europe at some point. But anyway, the whole thing was very ill-conceived. It was another backlash, a uh, great deal of anger. Wilson, of course, was appalled. So that was something, again, nudging him in that direction. The other thing that pushed him in that direction, um, I think, was his belief by early 1917 that he had to be involved in the war. There's a, there's a very dramatic scene in the book where, where Adams comes to the White House in, in early 1917, and she's trying to get him to like find a way to get out of this war, to keep out of the war. And Wilson tells her, 
if I don't, if we don't get involved in this war, in so many words, I won't have a place at the peace table. I might be able to, I won't be able to get in even by a crack in the door. So he's almost saying to her that I can't do the great things I want to do with remaking the world and being involved with the League of Nations unless America is involved in this war. So I think that was another, a very important thing that motivated him. And finally, there were just simply, it became clear the Germans this time were not going to pull back to appease the Americans. Um, in, in late March, you had several American ships that were sunk, uh, three in very rapid succession. And at that point, the die, again, the die is cast. Uh, Wilson is going to ask for war. And Wilson, it was something he did not, he was not someone who glorified warfare. He's not like Roosevelt, whose greatest desire was to go to fight. Roosevelt was hoping, he was trying to raise, he was actually had been working on raising a division to, to go to Europe to fight in this war. Um, so he is so itching to go over, even though he's over, he's, he's almost 60 years old, he's not in great shape and he wants to go over and fight because that's a big part of what Roosevelt was all about, you know, manliness and, and, and that type of thing. Whereas Wilson was not at all inclined in that direction. He was not someone who was, who, who was, who was, who was um, wired that way. And there's even some diplomatic correspondence with the French, where one, one of the French diplomats is saying like, you know, Wilson supposedly told me that he was afraid to go to war because he felt he would be held responsible by, by God for, for the killing of all these, these young men he was going to send to their deaths. And Wilson, of course, was, was the son of a Presbyterian minister. So I think Wilson was ambivalent up to a point, but then came to realize for me personally and for the nation personally, the best decision is to go to war. Um, I think when the vote for war, you know, the, Wilson makes his speech asking Congress to declare war. Then you have the debate in Congress. And the vote in Congress was 373 to, I think, 50, which may sound like that's really not that much opposition. But what people said at the time was if it had been a secret ballot, it would have been a lot closer um, in Congress. In the Senate, it was 82 to 6, I believe, was, was the vote. Um, but there was considerable ambivalence in, again, the Midwest and the South about agreeing to participate in this war, even at the last minute. Uh, and there were some that believed that Wilson could have found another path uh, rather than to go to war in April 1917. And maybe considering those other paths, was the declaration of war on Germany in April 1917 inevitable? Or were there other possible outcomes? I know it's slightly counterfactual for a historian to consider, but sometimes these things are worth just thinking about. I think definitely. I think Wilson probably could have said, we're, gonna, we're just going to continue to be neutral. Uh, we will arm our ships. Um, and if they, you know, if they skirmish with, with, with uh, German submarines, so be it. Uh, we, will consider to, we will continue to supply the Allies, but we are not going to commit American troops uh, for this. Uh, he could have said the number of Americans who have actually been killed in these submarine attacks it's less than 200 or whatever it was. And this is not enough to warrant going to war. I think he could have done it. There might have been strong opposition, but he had just been elected president. So he didn't have to worry about that issue. Um, he might have politically worried about the Republicans and, and Roosevelt, who had returned to the Republican Party by this point. There was a lot of talk that Roosevelt was going to run for president in 1920, which would be the next election after, after, after the most recent. But I do think it was possible certainly for Wilson to have simply said, we're going to continue the status quo. Um, Adams, as I said, up to the last minute, had, she had gone to him, tried to get him to consider, consider alternate paths. Uh, she was still pushing the conference of neutrals as a first step towards a peace conference. Like, why can't we get together with, again, like Spain and Sweden and things like that and, and have some sort of conference, which will bring, eventually bring the other nations together. Um, but the thing about Wilson is he, you know, Adams thought he was much more of a pacifist than he actually was. And he really was someone who, you know, for him, he came to realize that his, his view and his vision for the future could best be realized by the war, by war, no matter how distasteful it was. But I do think there were alternate paths to follow in 1917. And it's, it's interesting because I quote this in the book, but Bernstorff, the, the, uh, the German ambassador after the war said, you know, Mr. Wilson wanted democracy in, in Europe. And perhaps if America had stayed out of this war, uh, the war may have been fought to a stalemate. And perhaps 
Uh, you know, things could have been very different in Europe after the war, very different in Germany after the war. He, he was, Bernstorff was convinced that uh, German soldiers returning from such a war would never have tolerated the monarchy much longer. And there could have been a democracy of some kind. And these are, again, again, counterfactual history. Um, but it is interesting to consider what might have happened if Wilson had, had decided not to go and how the war might have unfolded. Um, it's also possible, and I mentioned this in the book as well, that maybe the two sides do fight to a stalemate, but that would probably mean they would have both marshaled up their forces again and, and fought it out a few years later, unless the League of Nations had been established and was prepared to intervene to stop another global war, uh, which we saw the League of Nations failed to do that in the 1930s, but of course that was without American involvement. I think if, if Wilson had managed to get his League of Nations somehow uh, and with America in it and willing to throw its weight around, that could have been another, another possibility of how events might have been different. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work and get the book? Uh, you can go to my website, which is www.neillanctot.com. Uh, you can also go to the Penguin Random House uh, website and you can find my book and certainly on Amazon, which is ubiquitous these days around the globe. So I'm sure the book is available through Amazon or your local bookstore, or whatever. Um, I think there's some a little bit of something for everyone in this book, you know, those who are interested in the war itself. Um, I think it, it's also a, I think, a snapshot view of, of, of life at that time, American life. Uh, in the early 20th century, you know, there's there's little little side side notes on things like Harry Houdini, Wilson going to see Harry Houdini in the theater, and and the new the new movie superstar uh, Charlie Chaplin. There was a Charlie Chaplin craze in America in the middle of this war. So so I think there's there's that there's the there's the big heavy stuff, and then there's just the story of these three people who tried to do what was right and often faced a lot of criticism. And I, I give them all three of them credit for they, they didn't flinch. I mean, they, they kind of stood up uh, to the public um, and they showed a lot of political coverage, uh, courage, which we, we need more of today in today's world, I think. Neil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS21. Nine five. Until next time.